0: This is Daniel Figel and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. We cover a lot of industries here in our use case episodes every single Tuesday on the AI and Business Podcast, from banking to life sciences and beyond, and we occasionally like to touch on defense. That's indeed our focus today. Our guest is Dr. Michael Sagallo, who's the CEO of SFL Scientific, a fast-growing AI consultancy here in the Boston area. They've gone from zero to something like 40 or 50 folks on their team in the last five years, and they've worked with some rather large customers in addition to the military, and they've been awarded the NVIDIA Services Partner of the Year the last two years running. Michael speaks to us today about the workflow of a defense analyst. Someone who's poring over data and aiming to find anomalies that might help inform defense's objectives. So if the military is looking to figure out where terrorists are going or maybe looking for clues as to the behavior of some ruler in some faraway country, uh, there's a lot of ways to be able to proxy that out of data streaming from various sources in the world. And defense analysts are burdened with what is often rather monotonous work to put together insights to bring to bear to military leadership. Michael talks to us about what it looks like to embed AI in that existing workflow and where it can actually add value. This is useful for essentially any industry working with oodles and oodles of data, aiming to make sense of it in terms of reports and interpretation, but I think defense just gives it a pretty cool color. I always like covering defense use cases. So without further ado, we're going to fly into this episode. This is Michael Sigala with SFL Scientific here on the AI and Business Podcast. <laughs> So, Mike, you folks have been doing a lot of work in federal. We last caught up maybe a year and a half ago, a lot of growth for you guys, a lot of great accolades with NVIDIA. Uh, The government space has been a big place of growth. Talk to us about this workflow in social media and kind of the the job of a defense analyst and how that's being done today, and then we'll pivot into where AI fits in.
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Dan. And and of course, right, we're seeing tons of money being thrown into the federal space from an AI perspective uh, for lots of good reason, right? And most of the, the opportunities here is traditionally, if you look across any of these large programs from the army to the Navy, to the air force, to the NGA, you have hundreds to thousands of skilled individuals manually looking through images or social media to basically find and assess risk, right? That's what they do. They sit, they're trained, they're very, very good at it, but they're very programmatic, right? And they take what they're given as gospel, and then they move it to the next level where they're supposed to then have somebody take action on that. That action might be monitored more closely, or eventually, hey, there should be a military kind of action required there. So the use case that we've been working on for about the past year or so um, is with some of, the, some of the departments within the Army that sits, obviously, outside of the U.S., What they're trying to accomplish is to basically be global listeners of all information that's being distilled to them. So you can imagine on a given day, you have millions of tweets and LinkedIn posts and newspaper articles and things like that are coming out, positive, negative, all sorts of different things across all sorts of different languages, right, to a given region. And as a traditional analyst that sits, for instance, in the army, your job is to basically assess all of these look for risks, look for patterns, and then basically pass it on to the next person who would take action, right? So that is a very traditional way that the problem has been solved, but it's, it's hard, right? Because people are subjective, meaning what one folk think is a risk, the other person doesn't. And it's not scalable, right? We're now exploding in terms of the content that's out there. So now we have a problem with subjectivity and explosion of growth, right? And that's where traditionally we've been in terms of analyzing this kind of information.
0: Got it. So it's sort of it harkens to a mental image that I have. I spoke with Mike Brown, who heads up the what used to be called the DIUX. I think it's the DIU now. Yeah,
1: sure. Who yep. talked
0: about the the visor men back in the early days of Project Maven or something, where these folks just had oh, yeah. the little green visor, just looking at screens, labeling stuff manually. It's just tremendously repetitive, can be very draining, obviously. And it sounds like in the social media space, you know, it's much the same. We're 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 looking for stuff. We're using judgment. Super repetitive. In order to scale it, you just need more human beings sitting in in seats. In this particular case, I can imagine risk just for the audience. Mike, I know we can't get into incredible detail here, but I'm I'm trying to clarify the image for the listener. We might be looking for things that seem like rustles in the breeze for terrorist activity. We might be listening for things that seem like rustles in the breeze as hints to what the government is up to. We might seem to it it could be sort of. I imagine maybe there's categories of risks we're looking for here right. and and you know red, orange, green, or something like that. I mean, do these folks have those strata in front of them as they're looking at the social media, so to speak?
1: It is, and it can be right, and it's not just risk in terms of is something malicious happening. it could be risk in terms of do we see spikes in covid in certain mm, populations. Okay. Or do we see anti-propaganda where the government is saying, hey, we have no spikes in COVID, but our people are saying we're all getting sick. Right? So it's really looking across the entire mm. spectrum of language to say, hey, something just doesn't seem right. Right. And that could be a lot of different things. Yeah. That's incredible. I mean, it seems almost overwhelming, Mike. I mean, because it's overwhelming. You know, when you
0: when you talk about, you know, training an AI system. A bounded reality is, mm, that's what we like, my good man. That's what we like, my brother. But you're talking right. about, well, risk. Yep, C- yes. could mean differences in these things, could mean references of these things. We're, we're talking about an infinite spectrum. Are the, the folks who are trained, I imagine they're trained for maybe a core set of, of maybe main risks, but it sounds like they also have to be able to be flagging and be aware of all these tertiary could be's and tertiary anomalies at the same time.
1: And, and it's unfortunately, it's the latter in most cases, Wow! right? Ideally, we wanna say, hey, just have your eyes open for this. But things happen too quickly, right? Things unfold as COVID is a great example, right? One day you heard a corona and you thought of a beer. The next day you hear a corona and you're thinking about this is an actual medical problem. This is actually a problem yeah. we're, we're dealing with now kind of locally with some of the pharma companies, but like terms change, technology changes, the way that we think about vocabulary changes, so you can't just have a rigid definition like you do in traditional images with Maven, where a building's a building a building, Yeah. right? You need to start distilling different languages in not just English and Spanish, but Spanglish and, <laughs> and things like this. It's a phenomenally, phenomenally complex space that these analysts have to deal with, which is the whole goal of helping them from an AI assist tool, right, which obviously what we can talk about now,
0: yeah, yeah, we'll spin into so and just just for clarity's sake, so we'll, the way we Please. like to frame up use cases uh, and then we'll pivot right into where AI fits into the workflows, we talk about what is the business value at hand, so we're talking about what the what these people are doing. I imagine the goal is we're potentially creating dashboards, we're potentially updating some kernels or set of kernels in generals with reports on topics of their interest. Or maybe right. even just notifying somebody when something really spooky seems seems like it's going to happen. So I, f- I feel like these analysts, their output is what, Mike? If you were going to sum it up, like, well, they're doing this so that they can X. Is it just entering stuff into some big net database that then
1: pumps out a report? Or are they often doing the writing themselves? Yeah. So let me give you one more small little intermediate piece of knowledge here. So what we're trying to create for them is basically a Google search functionality just imagine you throw up google right now and you can type into a yep. window and you can ask a question what are my risks today that's an absurd way to think <laughs> yeah about yeah of it. course but like of course. It, you could say something like that the goal is to enable them to get back relevant information and then write reports about what they're finding in that information okay right and then serve that to their leaders whoever they're serving right to actually let them make that informed decision yep. as well
0: Cool. Okay, so these are the people right. that are looking for the info as well as creating the reports that are going to get funneled up Correct. to the to the top. Okay, great. So, yeah, when we talk about where AI could fit into that workflow, already, you know, my mind is dancing with all the places NLP could fit into the mix and and other things like that, but for you folks, you know, you, you've figured out maybe what their problems are and where AI could could wiggle its way in. What's that integration been looking like? Where were those junctures where AI has been able to make its way in?
1: So the first area is the obvious one, right? I think on a a given 30 day window, because we're basically looking across 30 days of legacy data, right? And data is literally hundreds of millions of records to automatically ingest these records into, right? We're using these modern day tools called BERT models or ELMO models, right? All these fancy little names for these deep learning models that make them sound simple. But basically saying, can I automatically ingest all this information and then start understanding those patterns? such that those patterns can then just be shown to a user who is looking to get some better level of understanding. right? So the first obvious place is just saying, if I'm a user and I want to search where is my risk, I want a computer to be able to understand what risk means, the context around where risk materializes itself, and then basically give me like a Google search of the top 10 areas where you need to investigate further. Maybe it's this tweet. Maybe it's this document. Maybe it's this user, right? And give you that almost like search-based functionality. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does.
0: It does. So I'm trying to imagine an example. And again, I'm using extrapolated examples, of course, because A, I'm not involved in this project and B, you know, it's, it's pretty sensitive stuff. But I'm imagining, okay, let's just say these patterns that you're referring to. You know, maybe we have some that relate to the spread of a disease, could be COVID, could be something else. Maybe there's entities we're sort of tracking here, there's sentiment we're sort of tracking here. Would the display simply be, hey, here are terms, phrases, topics that seem to be exceedingly repetitive over the last, let's say, trailing 30 days, trailing, you know, 24 hours, et cetera. Is it something akin to that? You know, hey, here's the entities and sentiments. Okay.
1: Yes, because from an analyst perspective, you have to realize you can make it as complex as you want. But at the end of the day, you have not an unsophisticated, but an untrained individual in AI consuming those results. Yes, yes, yes. And most importantly, you have somebody who's not going to sit around for 20 hours waiting for your model to return a result. So you need to build something that inferences at an SLA that they care about and produces a simple visualization around, here's the top keywords, here are some topics, right, that are Meaningful to them that they don't need to think about the math behind it, such that they can almost take that probability score as their net new gospel
0: yeah. and then move
1: it on to the next level, right? So it has to be simple yep. in visualization, but complex in build. Right.
0: Yeah. And that's, well, that's the challenge with AI in general, right? I mean, uh, right. writ large, that's, that's the issue that we're going to run in, into, you know, just thinking out loud here, taking that as a new gospel. I mean, that's, that's a lot of weight on your shoulders there, Mr. Mike. I mean, that's a, that's a big deal, right? Because these folks, obviously they're going to use other tools, of course, but it sounds like what? this is going to be another tool that'll be a layer that maybe Correct. they'll filter where their attention going to go. Hey, it's 8 a.m. I'm sitting in front of my computer again. Do I just start reading stuff or do I maybe poke into the things that are beat red and have changed yep. in the last 24 hours? Well, why don't I start there? It sounds like it's more of an efficient use of scanning time tool, Correct. maybe more so than a definitive defining of what the risks are tool.
1: It has to be, right? And there's an adoption curve. Of just familiarity with the tool and the output. And this is just not in this use case. This is literally in every, every AI output. Yep, yep. Everyone. It is, I've done a process the same way for 20 years, and you're gonna tell me this computer is gonna give me the new <laughs> exactly, answer. you exactly. don't do that overnight. No, no. You no. have to gain their confidence. So you do that by maybe spending the first several weeks running it side by side in parallel and showing them, hey, I'm giving you every time the best results or almost the best results and getting them more and more and more confident such that they rely more and more on the system. It's always a decision support tool. Always. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So this is, um, this brings us into topics that we really like to, to drum home here at emerge. One factor that, that I'm seeing a lot of in this kind of COVID era is that tools that are, that we believe, I think RPA is going to just truck, in in the next two years, I think, I think UiPath is just going to, I don't, Lord knows how much they're going to be worth in two years. But um, I think efficiencies, everybody wants efficiencies. AI, for some weird reason, often gets couched as efficiencies only, which is just so limiting and and a, a terrible way to frame it. But deep really hard integrations of AI that involve a lot of data sources and overhauling workflows I think just have an even lower chance of getting adopted when our R&D budgets are down we're sketchy about the economy everybody's already fearful I think what we have to be able to do and it sounds like this is what you're talking about we've addressed this in other podcasts is you find a place in the workflow to fit it in they're not doing the data science they're not really getting too crazy you probably need in the beginning mike to bring on some of these guys to help with engineering the features, coaxing out what you want to pay attention to. You probably need to partner yep. with a cluster of them for a while. But the day-to-day on the dashboard, they just, they're just they able to look at it. It's not really changing what they're doing. Do you put this in a dashboard they already look at? Is this a new screen they have to have open? How does this fit into the the flow of their attention?
1: So it absolutely depends on how they're going to adopt it. So I think most people do it the wrong way. And I'm going to talk about the way that we do it. You can say it's right or wrong. It's up to you. I think it's the right way. So most people, when they do real integration of data science, of AI or ML, whatever you want to call it, they start from the fun side, the algorithm side, the training. I'm going to get the greatest, biggest NLP model in the world, and I'm going to train it with a billion parameters, and it's going to be 99.99% accurate. But in reality, in a production environment, there's no way anybody will ever consume that. It's too slow, you don't have the hardware, you don't have the data to support that, and an analyst isn't going to wait for it to predict or you have a visualization. So to your point, you always have to start with what are those fundamental business requirements from an inferencing point of view, from a visualization point of view, and from the business side? How are you going to actually get ROI on that? Solve that problem first with the assumption that the model works. You don't need to prove it, just assume the model works. So starting there and saying, does this need to be in the same visualization dashboard or is it something different because that can have profound differences of what you do or don't build maybe you can have a different technology stack or or you don't and you're limited right so starting from that end user requirements has to infer what kind of data science and modeling that you can do and then work your way to that side last right and then actually do the modeling so Everybody is uniquely different depending on what they need to accomplish.
0: Yeah, yeah. But it it sounds like, again, maybe it's embedded in existing dashboard X. Maybe it has to be its own interface in some way, shape, or form. But uh, yeah, it just depends on how it's getting fit in. Um, Obviously, you guys are doing custom stuff per. So, um, okay, that's useful context, I think, here. Let's talk about that nitty-gritty of getting past those adoption barriers. I know you folks often also work in healthcare. I got to tell you, Mike, I, I say this with all due respect if there's any sector I was not going to sell AI into, if I was doing the technical work, like luckily we just do market research here, right? But uh, if I was doing the technical, it would be healthcare because of just how many hurdles there are like, oh, the CEO loves it and it's going to benefit the patient, but the doctor has to learn it. And the nurse's workflow changes a lot. The stakeholder mix there is just, I mean, mean, it's scary. In defense, of course, is also complexity. So if we talk about what it takes to sort of you know, get folks to to start to use this. You know, we went in with great intentions. The the folks that signed off on this knew that we were good at this. They believed in the vision. They thought this would be really, really helpful. We want to get people to kind of get some traction with it. What is that convincing process, for lack of better terms, that internal traction process? Talk about a bit of that, Mike.
1: The beauty about healthcare is if you're a researcher or a doctor, you're inherently a scientist who is open to collaboration and and ideas right okay that makes it easy. so that that's a good starting point (laughs) yeah when we get involved in healthcare and this could be in research hospitals or big pharma companies or something like that we have to embed ourselves into their sme mix so for instance when we're working the hospital system and they want to do say medical imaging on i don't know radiological imaging for ct images or something like that you don't just start building it What we've done in the past to help them bridge this barrier is literally go to their rounds in the morning, sit with them while they're discussing patient cases, and literally talking and understanding what are they doing when they're looking at these images? How much time does it really take for them? And how much of an interference is that to really then them talk to their patients and helping them build that story of saying, like, if this was solvable, and if we can predict conditions in sepsis and relapses, and give you a better patient and doctor experience, would that be of interest? And they say, oh yeah, yeah, that would be great. And then you start teaching them, okay, so we've broken down that you you think the process works from a process perspective, and I understand what you're doing because I'm literally sitting and looking at your rounds with you, which is a horrifying experience if you've ever done that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's terrible. Oh man. Um, Well, it's not terrible, but it's it's a reality check very quickly. Gotcha. Then you start needing to educate them, right? Like, What does it mean to build an algorithm? What is a probabilistic score mean? How is this going to help you in your day to day and really treating them as, you know, they're brilliant in their discipline. You have to go in there and show that you're brilliant in yours and coming together with a common understanding. And that really breaks down the barriers. If you're just going to go in there and say, Hey, listen, I can predict, um, cancer better than you can, they'll laugh you out and you'll never have a chance, right? Yeah. You really have to develop a peer to peer relationship.
0: And, and, uh. It sounds as though yeah, so this is this is sort of even in suggesting the project itself. I'll wrap this as our last little bundled question here as we close out this first sure. interview. Sitting down, sort of figuring out what their day-to-day problems are, maybe suggesting having it be their idea, a little bit of inception action here. Oh yeah. It it has to be. You know, I think about uh you know, philanthropic efforts, right? If you go, it's the same thing. You go into Africa and you're like, I can get you guys water. It's like, oh, dude, be careful now. You know, you, you have to you have to sort of find a way to, and so in your case, it's the same ballgame. You, you go there, figure out what they care about, where they're, you know, bumping up against, come from that place where they're not going to listen until they know they're understood, right? So you make sure that they're understood. Then you can say, hey, if we could have this in this way so that it would make this easier, would that be useful? And it's, it's sort of like a, Almost certainly, yes, if you could do it kind of thing, and, and that's how you have to suggest it. Then you have the issue, Mike, and, and you brought this up with defense, and we can talk about whatever industry. I just think the dynamic's fascinating, maybe in defense specifically, around what it takes for them to start to use it once you built it. So now you've built it. now it's now it's available. you said you're running this 50/50 test, does there have to be a framework of thinking for you as the vendor to say, okay, we always know. When we build something, we're going to run a 50-50 test. We're going to talk to the economic buyer. We're going to tell them that's what we're going to do when it's done built because we know this is not just going to be a rolled out thing. There's always going to be a little bit of a wrestling match here. Oh, yeah. Is that part of what you're planning for? Does that kind of- Oh my God,
1: yes. Okay. <laughs> Especially in the <laughs> okay. medical space. So the biggest issue with medicine, even though they're brilliant, is they don't like to think they're ever wrong. But statistically, doctors are wrong 10% okay. of the time, right? It, it's just a fact. Yep, it so is Part of this journey has to be helping them see and designing a system that allows them to understand what we're predicting, what they're actually predicting, and showcase that these two things could live cohesively. And you're not replacing them, you're augmenting and making their jobs more efficient, right? So you can't just say you're 93% accurate historically, because that's what all radiologists are our machines 95% accurate we're better than you you can't do that right course, it doesn't work that yeah. way so you have to build this this workflow same thing right a ui that's friendly that shows them and, and explains right it's a heat map it's a localization it's something that gets them comfortable with why you're making your decisions and then that's how you get their adoption
0: yeah yeah so again a lot of human factors here you know you guys all, are in the services you're in the services industry mike and uh, yeah, got your we PhD, are. but man, you, you sure got to learn your soft skills, my good sir. Oh Cle- my God. Clearly, you've learned a lot of them. So interesting. I think maybe this is a good take home message as we close out for the folks that are working on these kinds of solutions is to think about how do we incept and really collaborate on the origin of the idea and the solution and sort of the way it's going to be framed. And then how do we do the same thing with very soft, nice framing around getting them to try it, getting them to adopt it, making sure it's not an automation risk and an insult to their intelligence. Oof, yep. People want to pretend it's about the algorithm, Mike, but I guess it's not, you know?
1: It's not. So (laughs) I would say, I mean, at this point, we've worked on almost every use case in every industry, right, realistically. They're solvable. Given enough data and technology and hardware, you can solve every problem in the world. That's easy. The people is the hard part, right? That's the hard part.
0: It's a a little bit of bloviation uh, with the claim there, but I will say you are driving home a point that everybody listening in does need to tune into. And if you listen to the show for long enough, you're well aware that that's the the case. Mike, I'm really glad we got to dive into that aspect of use cases as well today. I know that's all we had for uh, this first interview, but thanks so much for joining us.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Dan.
0: So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. If you like what you're hearing here, if you enjoy these use case episodes, if you enjoy our Making the Business Case episodes on Thursday, where we talk about AI deployment and return on investment, then drop us a review on iTunes. It's now called Apple Podcast, but it's very easy to find us. Just AI and Business on Apple Podcasts. Your feedback is not only tremendously valuable to me and my team, it helps us inform who we want to let on the show, what kind of topics we want to cover so that we can make things better and better for you. In fact, this twice-a-week format that we're doing is actually based on reviews, feedback, and LinkedIn notes from those of you who are loyal listeners. So I want to say a big thanks for that already. But that's going to keep us informed moving forward as to what you'd like to know. Also, it helps get the word out about the podcast itself. Every now and again, I'll share one of the nice five-star Reviews we have on Apple Podcasts let other folks know what what people really see and value in the program, and that really helps us a bunch as well. So helps me help you. If you enjoy the program, drop us a five star review. It's AI and Business Podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't already checked out our other show, the AI and Financial Services Podcast, check that out on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite platform as well. And be sure to get all of our latest coverage. On financial services banking wealth management insurance etc we have a whole show dedicated to that as well so that's all for this episode i'm going to catch you here for our thursday making the business case episode on the ai and business podcast